My name is R.D. Yant, and I am, have the privilege of serving on the Union League Club Board of Directors and as chairman of the club's Public Affairs Committee. On behalf of the officers, members, and directors of the club, I welcome you to today's forum on the state budget, which we are pleased to co-sponsor with NPR Illinois and AARP Illinois. Today's program could not, be could not possibly be more timing, and we thank you all for joining us on this important discussion. As I said, we are pleased to join NPR Illinois and AARP Illinois to host this forum because convening events like this is at the very heart of the Union League Club's mission. Allow me to explain a little bit why. Uh, we are gathered this afternoon in the only private club in the nation with an institutional commitment to public policy advocacy. The reason is that it has to do with the club's origins, which date back to the Civil War. Uh, this club arose from a movement of citizen patriots formed during the Civil War that called itself the Union Leagues of America, formed to promote patriotism and to help President Lincoln to defend the Union. Uh, that's where the Union and Union League Club's name comes from. Um, these Union Leagues of America chapters uh, proliferated throughout the northern states, and at the height of the war, there were more than one million citizens affiliated with this movement. When the war ended, most of the Union League chapters uh, disbanded, but those who were active in the Chicago area, near the birthplace of the mo movement, I believe at Pekin, Illinois, were reluctant to dissolve their fellowship and formed this club in 1879, whose primary objects included to resist and oppose corruption and to promote economy in office and to secure honesty and efficiency in the administration of national, state, and municipal affairs. Therefore, for the past 130 years, 38 years, the Union League Club of Chicago has upheld these values, promoting civic engagement, good government, and service to others. And of course, civic engagement requires an educated populace of citizens who are prepared to scrutinize the activities of their elected officials and to hold them accountable. It is in this spirit we meet today to discuss recently enacted fiscal year 2018 state budget, to hear your views, to talk about what will happen next. Again, thank you for being here to participate in this vital conversation. Now to continue our program, please join me in welcoming the general manager of NPR Illinois and publisher of Illinois Issues, Mr. Randy Eccles. Thank you very much. It's great to see uh, so many people who really care about what's going on with the state and, uh, wants to, and want to find out more about the budget. Uh, the process is not over, as most of us know, and you're going to hear a lot more about that in just a moment. Uh, just to explain, NPR Illinois is based in the state capitol. We have the State House Bureau for all the public radio stations in the state. So we feed WBEZ here in Chicago and also WDCB out in DuPage. Um, we have our moderator tonight is our State House uh, bureau reporter, and Brian Mackey will join us in a little bit. Uh, but also I want to let you know that Illinois Issues has been, it was a magazine for about 40 years, and it's converted into a digital product that now takes an in-depth look at the issues impacting Illinois. And this forum is a part of what Illinois Issues wants to do. Not only do we want to make sure we're informing you, but we want you to inform us on what type of coverage we should be looking at. So we thank you very much today for coming, and uh, we really hope to hear from you and our excellent panel here in just a moment. Thanks to uh, the Union League Club for letting us uh, use this space today. And finally, I'd like to introduce our partner and sponsor, AARP of Illinois, and their Illinois State Director, Bob Gallup. 
Thank you, Randy, and, and thank you all for being here. Um, on behalf of AARP's 1.7 million members here in Illinois alone and our 38 million members across the country, these are issues that are of great importance to them and their families. And we, we joined in this effort with NPR Illinois and we called our part of the campaign um, Enough is Enough for a state that has gone, had gone two years without a budget which is one of the most basic fundamental things that a state government is supposed to do is to have a budget. It just became you know, utterly ridiculous, and not just from the standpoint of, of the embarrassment of that compared to other states in the United States who have been able to do this basic work, but we were hearing from individuals all across the country and also service providers who provide services to those individuals. So as far south as Alton, Illinois, we would hear from individuals who used to get five meals delivered to them a week who are only getting one um, because the service providers were not being paid. When you hear the news about $15 billion in unpaid bills, those bills are due to service providers, nonprofit organizations and different agencies that have been contracted with the state to provide these services. Some of them have closed their doors, laid off staff, can't deliver meals. In places like Peoria, we've heard um, from service providers who have closed adult daycare centers across that region where individuals could take their loved one for some respite during the day while that individual goes across um, different parts and goes to work or does uh, their daily duties. And many of these places probably won't open again because once you've closed something, once you've laid off your staff, and once you have all these unpaid bills, the chances of you um, providing those services again um, are very difficult. Here, in, uh, we see problems here in Chicago in our own neighborhoods. I live in Chicago. Um, I have staff here in Chicago who works in communities and hears the pain from individuals in their daily lives. We have staff in Springfield who are covering southern Illinois who are hearing these stories as well. So tonight, what you're going to hear is some, from some, a panel of experts here who can tell you the story about what happened and why and where we are now. Because before the budget was passed, we were standing at a precipice and about to fall, fall into it or into the abyss as a state, but we're still standing at that precipice. So you might be angry at the tax increase, you might be breathing a sigh of relief, but there's a lot more that needs to be done and it needs to be addressed. And the only way that's going to really be done in the end is by your participation and your insistence with your elected officials to do the job that they're elected to do to put Illinois back on a path to fiscal sustainability and the responsibility that comes with that. So I thank you for being here this evening and I appreciate your attention and I hope you'll tell some of your stories and share your concerns as well. Thank you. Hello everybody, I'm Brian Mackey. Uh, as somebody said earlier, I'm the State House reporter for NPR Illinois and public radio stations across the state. Um, I'm just going to briefly introduce the panel, and I think uh, they each have some uh, opening remarks. Uh, but before I do that, I want to mention, uh, you know, we're called Public Radio for a reason, and one of the things we really want to do here is hear your stories as well of how the state budget is affecting you. So please do come up to the microphones throughout the uh, course of the event, and uh, feel free to share your stories. Um, so I'm going to begin uh, at the far end of the table. Uh, Lawrence Masal is president of the Civic Federation, 
Next to him, Tony Preckwinkle, of course, president of the Cook County Board. Sheila Weinberg is the founder and CEO of the organization Truth in Accounting. And finally, John Bauman, president of the Shriver Center, uh, Sergeant Shriver Center National Center on Poverty Law, I think is the full name. Um, so, uh, uh, Lawrence, if you'd like to begin. Um, pro problem solved in state government. We're, we're A-OK -okay now that we have a budget. <coughs> Very funny. Thanks for coming, everyone. <laughs> Thank you, Brian. Um, no. As for those of you who don't have Wi-Fi and aren't able to get the Illinois Public Radio in your homes in Chicago, the state still is in severe financial distress. This budget, um, and really we like to refer to it as the framework for a budget because the way it was enacted was um, unusual even for Illinois. So the good news is that the Illinois General Assembly um, passed a budget framework and sent it to the governor at the end of July. <coughs> the governor then vetoed um, the, a series of three bills that make up the budget, and the Illinois General Assembly then overrode his veto, thus creating the um, framework for a budget. It wasn't a perfect budget by any means, but as the Civic Federation has been saying for over three years, some budget would be a lot <coughs> less expensive than no budget. For the last three years, really because we entered into the third fiscal year, the state of Illinois tried an experiment that 49 other states never wanted to go down, and that is to try to operate their government without a budget. Not having a budget is not the same as saving money. Not having a budget is not the same as um, um, being fiscally conservative. We ran over $4 billion um, in costs and obligations that the state incurred because it had no budget, for which it, that $4 billion for which it had no revenue and no foreseeable revenue for how it would be paid. That's what drove up the $15 billion in unpaid bills. On a regular basis, the state pays incredible penalties for um, those unpaid bills. In Illinois, we have something called the Prompt Payment Act, so vendors are promised an addition of payment that if it's not paid promptly, that the state is going to pay a significant interest penalty. That interest penalty rises to 9 to sometimes 12% for healthcare-related providers. Think about that. In addition to paying for the services late, then the state adds a 12% penalty. That means we're spending a lot more money than we need to for our government, and we're spending it in a very wasteful fashion. Currently, the state backlog of unpaid bills, as uh, was mentioned, is about $15 billion. More than $4 billion of that is in unpaid health care claims for the employees and retirees of the state of Illinois. That, that those bills will be paid, but they are going to be paid with that 12% interest, annual interest penalty. In the last decade, we've spent over $1 billion in unnecessary penalties on our bills. That's a billion dollars that could have been used to help education, to help the most vulnerable, to, to do a lot of good things. Instead, it was wasted. The state comptroller's office estimates that if we pay down this year's unpaid bills, we'll have penalties totaling $800 million. That's $800 million that for the benefit of the citizens, we might as well lit it on fire because it provided no benefit. It basically covers up the financial recklessness of our state. 
the, the budget as it is put together is basically about $36.4 billion in revenue and $36.1 billion in expenditures. That leaves a whopping surplus of $360 million if all the budget assumptions hold. The, some of those assumptions include the selling of the James R. Thompson Center for about $380 million. If that doesn't happen, then we're going to lose that surplus and the state will be barely balanced. If some of the other assumptions that are built in the budget, which include a billion dollars in savings on the pensions by changing the actuarial assumptions and by pushing out the cost for schools and universities to the school districts, um, then will be a billion, if that doesn't come to fruition and we've seen no actuarial analysis in the Civic Federation, which is a nonpartisan government research organization, we focus on tax policy and fiscal issues. We've been asking the governor, we've been asking the legislature to show us the actuarial basis for saving a billion dollars in our pension contributions and we're still waiting for that analysis. Unknown is how the state will move forward with those 15 billion in unpaid bills. The budget does give the state the authority to borrow about $8 billion to pay down those unpaid bills. Right now, the state of Illinois is debating whether or not the schools will open because as part of the budget compromise, as part of the budget agreement, we booby-trapped the elementary and secondary education appropriations, saying that unless there is an evidence-based formula to allocate the money, which is something that probably everyone, including myself and everyone on this panel would agree, an evidence-based model for distributing elementary and secondary education would be a good thing. Unfortunately, there is not that agreement among the General Assembly as to what that formula looks like. That's called Senate Bill 1. That's where our General Assembly will be reconvening on Sunday and um, to take up the governor's veto of Senate Bill 1. So there is not agreement on an evidence-based formula for the elementary and secondary education. That means tomorrow, the, day, the, the 10th of August, the day that the first school aid formula payments go out, that's the general um, money for the schools, won't happen. So all the school districts around the state, not just Chicago, aren't receiving their <coughs> school aid formula payment tomorrow. If that goes on for more than a week or two, many schools will be under dire financial stress. Many of the schools, even though that we've been funding elementary and secondary education through appropriations during these last two years of the budget impasse, there hasn't been enough money in the state treasury. So many of the what are called categorical funds, those would be funding for transportation, funding for special education, funding for um, reduced or free meals for the, for the neediest students, there's been great delay in those payments to the school districts. We're being told, and we're told before this budget, that if the um, state doesn't stabilize its finances, if it doesn't have additional revenue to bring down the unpaid bills and to fully fund its government, many of the school districts would not be able to open or stay open beyond the beginning of this um, fall. So we're in a very unfortunate and really embarrassing situation now in the state of Illinois. Because we've gone two years, almost three years, without a budget, the credit rating agencies, the people that um, determine what the uh, reliability of the state paying back the money that it needs to borrow to generally operating, the bond houses, rank Illinois the worst rated credit in the United States. 
we're a beautiful state. This is a beautiful city. There's a lot of people, and all of us who want to live here continue. We have a lot of assets. It is beyond ridiculous that we would have such a low-rated credit, just one notch above what's called junk bond status or non-investment grade. That's an embarrassment for anyone who looks at the state of Illinois and sees what, what our potential is and what our responsibilities are. I so think, um, I will leave it with that. Okay. Sorry, Brian. No, it's all right. Uh, I, I would just put a point on what you were saying about the $800 million in particular of uh, the estimated amount of interest alone. Uh, for a story I did on Monday, I, I calculated that's about um, or a little more than what uh, the state has budgeted to spend on the U of I, Chicago State, Eastern, Western, and Northern Illinois universities combined just on interest payments. Um, President Preckwinkle. Thank you. You know, I, I just want to begin, I guess, uh, where Lawrence did, which is the basic responsibility of every unit of government uh, is to pass a budget, and every executive's responsibility is to prepare a budget and see that it gets passed. Um, and we haven't done that in Illinois for two and a half years, and that's been um, a nightmare. You know, I usually talk about in three parts. First, that we've shredded our social service safety net. As Lawrence pointed out, many of our not-for-profit organizations have... Uh, because they weren't being paid for the services that they've been delivering on behalf of the state forever. Um, either <clears throat> laid off staff, cut back programs, and some closed their doors. So first our social service safety net gets shredded. Uh, secondly, local units of government like mine are severely challenged. And let me just say, um, the Prompt Payment um, Act does not apply to other units of government. So when the state owes us money, we don't get any interest. And the state has owed us um, over the last several years anywhere from $50 million in one month uh, to $193 million. So it fluctuates from one month to the next. Uh, but um, owing millions of dollars <laughs> to local units of government is a real challenge to them. We have reserves, and we've managed. Uh, but, you know, if you think of... of other cities, towns, and villages across the state uh, who are owed money, they don't have the reserves that we do in Cook County. And it's been a tremendous challenge to them. Either they have to borrow money or they have to lay off people and cut back programs. So that's a real challenge. I, I want to congratulate uh, the Democratic members of the House and Senate who supported a budget framework and the uh, 15, 16 Republicans who voted for the framework and then the 10 Republicans in the House who voted to override the governor's veto. Because without uh, those courageous men and women, we would have no budget framework at all and be in a worse place. I mean, we're not in a good place now. We're surely in a better place than we would be without a budget framework. Um, you know, <clears throat> I'm a teacher by profession. Um, and I'm particularly concerned that, and this is the third thing that I always talk about, uh, what's happening to our um, public institutions of higher education. Now we've got two in the state that are pretty strong, uh, Champaign-Urbana, University of Illinois, and University of Illinois in Chicago. But the others, Eastern, Western, Southern, Northeastern, were really brought to the brink, the edge of the precipice by this. Um, you know, it's unclear what's going to happen to Chicago State because it hasn't had state support for so long. Um, Northeastern Illinois University in June, I think, laid off 180 people, something like that, and that was after they cut everybody's salaries by everybody's salaries by 10 or 20 percent. Um, you know, and, and 
these institutions of higher education are not just um, places for individual opportunity, they're economic engines for our state. Um, and the, what's done, has been done to them over the last several years, I think, is disgraceful. But the worst thing, in my mind, the worst thing is that people lose faith in their, the ability of their government to function effectively. And in a democracy, that's a precious commodity, people's faith in their government. And, and, I, and I think, despite the disasters in social service and what's happened, the challenges for local units of government and, and, and the diminution of our institutions of public higher education, the worst thing is an intangible, and that is people's faith in their government. And to be the worst state in the country in terms of bond ratings, to have gone two and a half years without a budget, which is true of no other state in the country since the Great Depression, which is like 70 years ago, I mean, this is just appalling. Um, and there's a lot of blame to be spread around, but I frankly put most of it at the door of the governor, uh, who, as I said, is the executive, and it's his responsibility to present a budget and pass it. And I think that in his effort to um, turn around the state, he was prepared to burn it down. And, and, and in my view, that's just um, unconscionable. Sheila Weinberg from Truth and Accounting. Thank you. <clears throat> the state isn't supposed to just pass a, a budget. They're supposed to pass a balanced budget. And for decades, year after year, the governors and legislators have come out and claimed, hey, we've balanced the budget. You've believed that they were living within their means. You believe that the state's revenues equaled its expenses. And I assume that you believe that they weren't going into debt. You didn't know that the governors and legislators were using a very sophisticated way of calculating the budget, a method that allowed them to claim these balanced budgets while putting the, day, the state hundreds of billions of dollars in debt. I call the sophisticated accounting system political math. Illinois' budget crisis did not start when we failed to pass a budget for the last few years. It was rooted in this political math that is featured in the balanced budget requirement clause in the 1970 state constitution. 49 of the 50 states have a balanced budget requirement for very good reasons, to promote accountability and to avoid accumulating debt. A balanced budget is intended to prevent elected officials from the ability to provide government services and benefits, i.e. they're going to get votes, without the pain of raising taxes, i.e. they're going to lose votes. But the loose wording of the balanced budget clause has circumvented this intention. The wording in essence says, what it says is that your expenditures should equal your funds available. So what are funds available? Their taxes that they get and their fees. But if you borrow money, does that not become available for you to spend? They can balance the budget by borrowing money. The balanced budget clause, if you'll notice, use the word expenditure. In business, we use the word expense. Expenditures, the legislature and governors, have decided to mean only the checks that you write. So if you don't plan on writing, a check for an expense uh, for the cost that you've incurred, i.e., Medicare costs, hospital costs, 
then you don't have to include that amount in the budget. This is one of the reasons that the state, we didn't, this unpaid bills is not a new thing. Before the crisis, we had $4 billion of unpaid bill invoices, and, and now we're up to 15. The largest accounting gimmick used to balance the budget is called deferred compensation. State employees are given compensation, which includes their salaries and benefits, including pensions. As employees work, they earn their compensation, and the state incurs a related compensation cost. Now, the salary portion of their compensation is included in the budget because they have to write the paychecks. So those get included in those expenditures. But all of the incurred pension costs doesn't have to be included in the budget because that will be paid in the future. But because the state has chosen to pay this, the pensions in the future doesn't mean that this portion of, of the compensation cost should have not been included or still should not be included in the balanced budget calculation. Another way to think about it is, wouldn't their paychecks have to be higher if they didn't offer these benefits? Instead of fully funding the compensation cost in each year by, um, by giving money to the pension plans, legislators and governors chose to use that money for more politically popular things. Imagine, hey, I'm going to pay into the pension. People don't care about that, but they do care about providing services and benefits. The legislators and the governors refused to raise taxes to cover the full cost of government. This might have gotten them reelected, but it put us in the current financial crisis we have. Now, there have been mention of this $15 billion of unpaid bills. Truth in accounting, we calculated the state's un, um, what we call money needed to pay bills, their financial whole, starting in 2009. And at that point in time, the state owed $120 billion, including the unpaid bills, including accounts payable, and including the amount that they have promised the employees but not funded in the form of pensions and retiree health care benefits. When Governor Rahner took office, the financial hole was $184 billion, and as of the latest financial report, that has grown to $210 billion. The main reason that we are in a budget crisis is our governors and legislators have chosen to use political math when calculating the budget instead of using truth in accounting. Thank you. John Bellman of the Shriver Center. Thank you. <clears throat> I completely agree that uh, the problem didn't start two years ago. It's been a long time uh, sort of failure to fully fund the, the vital programs and services that there's a remarkable consensus about in Illinois that these are the things people expect from government. Um, so it, it's, uh, uh, th that's where the problem came from. So where are we now? Um, the Shriver Center represents people in poverty, so I'm going to talk mostly about uh, the programs that are most important there, human services and healthcare in particular. Um, there, there, you know, and we got, thank goodness, a budget with 
$5 billion in permanent new revenue. Uh, the difficult thing, though, is when you take a little bit of a closer look at it, it's actually not enough. Um, and we've once again sort of perpetuated the problem of not funding the promises made on the spending side. Um, we have the $15 billion in back bills to pay. Uh, and this budget, other than the borrowing authority, which is probably cheaper than paying the interest on late payments, uh, but there, there's no, uh, at most, that'll top out around $8 billion. So they're just by do the math, right? There's still a problem with back bills. Secondly, it's not enough to forward fund what, what we're doing now. Uh, even after the cuts made in this budget, um, there doesn't appear to be enough money to, to pay what the promise is on the spending side, what the appropriations are. So the governor today, I read, is asking for the agencies to give him a list of 10% further cuts. Um, the problem with all this is that it does, it's not a policy conversation. It's not how important are these things we're cutting and should we you know, tighten our belts and, and, and pay for them. It's just cut. Um, the, we have to rebuild capacity. Um, you know, when there are layoffs, when there are closures, when there are leases terminated, you can't just, when there's a budget, turn the lights back on and everything's fine. So in areas like breast and cervical cancer screening, there's like 34% fewer screens this year than last year. Domestic violence uh, shelters and services, uh, home meals for seniors, home delivered meals for seniors, thousands of those, shortfall. Homeless services, 90% of homeless organizations reported layoffs, closures, program terminations. That all has to be rebuilt if we're gonna address that problem. Uh, drug and alcohol use disorders, those treatment programs have almost entirely dried up because of the budget crisis. Um, community mental health, something like 80,000 people who sought services couldn't get them. Um, that has to have a direct correlation both to violence and the census in the county jail, now the largest mental health institution uh, funded by county government. And uh, the after-school and anti-violence programs have pretty much dried up uh, that need to be rebuilt if we're going to address these problems. So we have to rebuild capacity. And then we have to think about investments that we need to make that we haven't been making. Uh, important things where there's a broad consensus about the return on investment, things like preventive health care, early childhood services, which uh, there was this modest increase in the new budget, so congratulations for that, but there's a lot of unmet need. What it leads to th is this. There still is not adequate revenue in the system, except in one area in Illinois, we are not an outlier. Uh, we're not in a high taxing state. We're lower than most of our neighbors, except in the property tax. Uh, but why is that? It's because of inadequate state investments in things like schools and prisons and, and, and uh, uh, violence prevention and so on. Um, and so one of the most important things we have to think about was mentioned earlier, and that is that we have to make sure that the courageous people who voted both in, in the state budget process and here in Cook County too for the needed revenue to run the systems we want and need 
uh, that this is not a politically dangerous vote for them. When the income tax was increased in 2011, unfortunately, <coughs> temporarily, none of the people who voted for it lost their next election. It is not as dangerous politically if people understand it properly. But that's up to us. Um, and so we have to pay attention to the politics of revenue. We have to make sure that when people have the courage to do the right thing, that it's not, uh, 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 that it's not automatically a political issue. And I'll say one last thing. Um, it's an ominous sign that uh, the governor chose to rebuild his staff with uh, uh, folks from an ideological think tank that believe in small government and low taxes, um, which is fine. They're, you know, that's, a, that's a point of view. I disagree with it deeply. One thing I'll say, though, is that they're honest about it. The problem with the debate around taxes is that the people against them never have a burden of proof. Right? They must say, what's your idea then? Where will you cut? And how will you go forward if you don't have enough money to pay for important things? The uh, person from the Policy Institute, who's now the chief of staff, put out a budget earlier this year with $5 billion in spending cuts. You know, I'm against all of that, almost all of it, uh, but at least it's honest, right? That's, and, and so that's the way the conversation should be had. There's one alternative here, there's another alternative there. Um, and so that's what I'm, I'm hoping for going forward as we enter an election season. Once again, we want to hear from you. So if you have questions or want to share a, a story of uh, state government, please come to one of our microphones. If you wouldn't mind introducing yourself, please. Good evening. I'm Ms. Sheila Clay. Uh, I'm an artist. And I met our President Obama on his campaign trail. And he talked about a unions of workers and the final level of change. And I gave him a letter, and I told him, the final level of change, Obama, I have to bring you up to a real final level of change when the world can unite as a united world human service with economic empowerment to eradicate poverty and suffering. Now, you have to take care of self, family, neighbors, America, and the planet that holds us together as one. We have education, health care, and transportation should be free as a people to be better, this is the only way we can change it as a unions of workers to provide good services in the health care, in, in uh, homelessness. This is the only way we can arrive to change with a, a beautiful idea to change it if we want to be better on this planet. And, um, and uh, health care, okay, food, I mean, with the liquor, alcohol, cigarettes, it should be a tax so you can eradicate those things out of people's lives because people are very weak and, and they can't control themselves. And that causes health problems and health care, and you have to go to the hospital to get surgery on throat and cancers and all that, and drinking and smoking. Now, if you want to change it, education, what makes those other countries have free education, free health care, you know, what makes them make their things work? We should borrow from our neighbors. Neighbors should work together, whether you far and near on this planet, to and better to change it. This is the only way we can change the things that you're talking about today with prison and, and giving them better service, being an excellent 
human service to human beings. So that, I, I, that's the only way we can be better. I think I hear Thank a you. call for more collective action there. Um, what, but I usually say, you know, um, if, you want good, if you want good government, you have to pay for it. And unfortunately in this country, you know, we've somehow bought the notion that um, we can have very low taxes and very good services. And it doesn't work that way. Uh, you, have to, you have to pay for good service if that's what you want. Um, and just to go back to the point that was made by John earlier, you know, the, the difficulty I had um, in, in <clears throat> the county as we looked for additional revenue, we said, look, either we're going to have to lay off 1,100 people or we're going to have to raise revenue. The people who didn't want to raise revenue had no option for us other than laying people off, um, which is what I said we were going to have to do if you just look at it. Uh, and, and unfortunately, the burden is always on us who support taxes to justify them and not on, the, not on the people who oppose the taxes to say, well, how are you going to, you know, what services are you really going to cut? What programs are you going to cut? You just don't want taxes. Okay, well, you know, are we going to stop delivering meals to seniors? Are we going to stop having uh, services for seniors in their homes? Are we going to stop helping families that have um, kids with physical and, and uh, mental challenges? I mean, you know, is that what we're going to do? What kind of country are we going to be if we don't raise the revenue to support the services that we all believe in? Well, one of the questions I'd like to ask, uh, and this was alluded to by several of you earlier, um, I'll frame it by saying when the budget was in the process of being passed and it, it looked like it was going to go through Moody's, uh, the bond rating agency came out with a statement and said, yes, we assume it's going to pass and we still think the state could be headed for junk bond status. They described substantial implementation risk. Uh, and this week we've heard the governor saying that perhaps the borrowing to um, pay down the backlog of bills at a lower interest rate is uh, not not an optimal solution, uh, I think. I'm, I'm paraphrasing him. Um, we heard this morning that he's asking his agencies to, uh, uh, as, as somebody else mentioned, uh, impound money, I guess. It, it's not exactly clear. I myself asked the administration what, uh, whether the governor intends to spend uh, all the money uh, appropriated in the FY18 budget, and the response was, our administration is carefully reviewing the budget and working with our agencies to identify options to reduce spending. Um, so how, how can the state, what, what does the future hold if we have a governor who may decide not to work with the budget that the General Assembly passed? I see President Preckwinkle backed away from the microphone. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody, else? Somebody else can take that one. I, I, uh, you know, there are some, there are some categories of spending where there are other uh, sources of authority and powers that be, right? So some spending is driven by court orders. Um, our, we were part of the lawsuit that forced the continuation of Medicaid payments during the impasse. If that hadn't occurred, about, who knows, you know, 8, 10, 12 hospitals would have closed, Mount Sinai, Roseland, et cetera. Uh, the safety net hospitals, maybe Stroger, I don't know. Uh, but the, um, that's because there's substantial federal money in that system and there's obligations that come with that that are enforceable in court. Um, so there's an order in place requiring the payment of Medicaid bills and that, that's, that didn't go away. That's still there. Um, there's other similar types of litigation regarding some spending lines. Um, and so 
there isn't complete freedom of movement there, but uh, uh, how uh, sort of essentially lawless can the governor be about obeying the, the budget laws? Um, there's some wiggle room there, and I think there's some con legitimate concern about whether the appropriated spending will actually happen. I think there's there are great challenges for everyone in government and everyone who c cares about government. The governor is has been delivered, and as, as was pointed out, a budget that was not of his making. It was basically he was the his veto was overridden, and it was a budget that he didn't fully embrace. This is completely uncharted territory, right? For a, for a, even for Illinois, which is often on its own uncharted course, <laughs> the biggest pressures right now will continue to be the unpaid bills, whether or not the governor um, or how the governor decides to use the authority to borrow to pay them down. But all of the solutions that are in, in, included in the budget um, framework are not easy unto themselves. The state has an enormous amount of work to do. Merely adding $5 billion to the state's revenue base was enough to buy off the credit rating agencies for a while, but now they want to see if the state can actually implement the budget. What everyone wants to see and what I feel, you know, fairly confident is going to be the major area of interest for almost all the citizens is if the school aid formula is going to be accepted, revised, something else is done. It is no other state has ever created a budget without the pressure that the schools won't open. Illinois funded the schools through appropriations for the last two and a half years when it didn't have a budget. Now we're in this odd um, Alice in Wonderland sort of version where all the other framework of the budget and the known expenditures are in place, but this money to this elementary and secondary schools will not happen unless the governor and the legislature reach consensus. The governor vetoed the bill. It now goes to the Illinois General. It is in the Illinois General Assembly. They will decide whether to accept his amendatory veto or to override his veto or do something else. There really is very little time to do something else without impacting the schools. So it is Sunday night when the gen when the Senate reconvenes is the first time we'll have a sense of what the G General Assembly is going to do. Yeah, I think the rating agencies honestly have been part of the problem here. Um, you know, how many of us already believe that the state's finances are in a junk heap? You know, they haven't reached junk bond status, but they are. You have to keep in mind that the bond ratings, we should have been in junk status long ago. Our finances were in horrible shape and they continued to give us good ratings. Um, other local governments that are hundreds of billions of dollars in debt, especially unfunded pension debt, still get triple A ratings. So all of us have a false sense of security that they're in fine financial shape. What you have to realize is those ratings only are concerned on whether the government has enough money to pay the bonds. And those bonds come out of the first tax dollar. So it doesn't matter whether the governments can provide for social services, schools, or can pay their pensions. It only matters whether those bondholders are going to get paid. So I caution you about using credit ratings, keep in mind that they are lagging behind on what the true financial condition of the governments.
First of all, there's another state university that everybody has ignored, Governor State University. Oh, Governor State, okay. thank you. Uh, but I, I'm going to limit myself to talking about the fuzzy math. Okay. Uh, number one, state employees don't pay Social Security. At the very least, that we ought to count as part of the budget, the equivalent of the Social Security for their salary. Okay, none of us can have a business without counting Social Security as one of our expenses. Okay. Second, the whole thing with the pensions goes back before the 1970 uh, convention. But during the 1970 convention, the unions managed to get into the Constitution that pensions cannot be cut. Uh, once it's earned, it's earned. Ever since then, when they've gone to legislators and say, hey, you're not funding it, you're not funding it, they're told, don't worry about it. It's been promised to you. The Constitution says you're going to have it. And the courts have agreed with that. But I think many people are upset that we're getting pensions. And it was... Wasn't I doing? Okay, thank you. Yeah, the pension cost, again, those are part of compensation cost, and, and they actually played a little game, and sometimes you'll hear that, well, the state workers get less in pensions, so then therefore, I mean, in, in salaries, so therefore they should get more in pensions. Well, that, again, that's just part of this game where they had to write those paychecks, but they didn't have to contribute to the pension plan. Um, you know, there is always highlighted here that the the state has to live up to this pension guaranteed clause. Well, I always ask, well, why do they not have to live up to a balanced budget clause? I, I think, you, and this is something that the overall budget, in, in trying to cover this for two years, it's the analogy that occurred to me is it's kind of like global warming, right? It's something that some people think is a, a huge problem, um, and yet it's very difficult to get people... Uh, to wrap their heads around the scope of the problem. And in terms of the pensions, um, so right now in Illinois, we have this ironclad guarantee. The Illinois Supreme Court has said, it's not our problem how it's paid for. It just has to be paid. And yet, as you pointed out, the liability is... Pensions are 138 billion dollars by itself. By, by itself. Um, so what is the honest conversation around that? Right, where, where do we... Um, you know, is it much higher taxes? Is it changing the Supreme Court? I don't know, changing the Constitution? I mean, we're, we're... Well, I always say that, you know, at Truth in Accounting, we don't, uh, we provide the truthful information. We don't advocate any policies. Um, but I always say that we have a long-term cash shortfall. We're, we need $138 billion to pay these employees the pensions that they have been promised. Okay, so in order to fix a long-term cash shortfall, you either need to bring more money in, um, maybe in the form of taxes, or you need to take less money out. Uh, those are your only two options. Um, now, has the Supreme Court uh, theoretically has taken that option off the table? I have heard movements underfoot where they um, are trying to, in essence, get a federal bailout, not a monetary bailout, but a, a bailout in the sense that should this current legislature be tied by what prior legislators have, legislators have done? 
or should they be able to make financial decisions by themselves? And to go to Congress and say, let's pass a law that gives this current legislature the right to make decisions about the pensions instead of having that closed off by the 1970 pension guarantee clause. I'm not saying we're in favor of that. I've just heard that that's a, an idea that has uh, been um, uh, said. I, you know, I think there's uh, groups that have uh, outlined a, a path forward to, you know, over a period of years get to a balance and a tolerable situation with the debt. Um, you know, it's it's not a bad thing for governments to have debt, but uh, the, the the issue is how much. I think Lawrence, your your group has a plan. I think uh, some others. There's others yeah, out a, there. But just a couple points um, for the gentleman. I assume you're a professor or uh, uh, an employee of one of the state universities. The state no, university. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So state universities and state teachers don't pay into Social Security. State employees, the people at the vehicle services, they are covered by Social Security. And so it's a significant point that um, the benefits are provided um, differently. Also, the people aren't required to contribute to Social Security. Um, and done, thus, the expectation can either be that they have no obligation or that they should invest the, the an equivalent amount on their own. The big challenge is it's $130 billion only for the state unfunded pension liabilities, or 138. How does the state deal with that? There is a, yes, the, our elected members of the state Supreme Court have made a ruling that says that um, those benefits have to be paid. The possibility of a constitutional amendment to clarify, perhaps, that the pension protection covers those vested, those benefits earned to date, and afterwards there can be discussion in, in almost every other state that faced similar, no state faced as large of a pension unfunded liability as the state of Illinois, but approximately 30 other states' legislatures enacted changes to reduce benefits going forward. Um, and their supreme elected members of their Supreme Court or appointed members of their Supreme Court because it differs by state found a way to accept that. We think it's there's really no math that you can come up with for a benefit on a pension system that everybody gets an automatic 3% compounded increase every, every year, year after retirement. No other state provides that, right? And the reason why they don't provide that, it's enormously expensive. I'm not saying that people aren't in, 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 entitled to cost of living adjustments. A 3% compounded interest benefit after we've underfunded the pension creates a financial withdrawal of the assets, and that's what's happening. Those funds are being drawn down. So there needs to be real attention to three things as the state moves forward. One, we have to reduce the number of governments that we have in Illinois. We have 6,978 units of property tax funded governments in Illinois. And that is more than twice any other state. Many of them are great governments. Many of us are, are, uh, can point to you know, great services that are provided. But we cannot continue to operate with so many different governments where the duplication exists. And you know where one of the greatest duplications exists? in our educational systems. We have school districts, we have, we have towns in Illinois 
city suburbs of Illinois that have four and five different school districts all feeding into sim, a similar student body. Why is that a problem? Because that means in addition to having four or five school districts, you have four or five superintendents, four or five assistant superintendents, four or five human service. It's a drag financially. We have outdated governments like township that no longer provide the services and provide an overlapping services to our municipalities. So we need to get serious about making our government more efficient, allowing for consolidation of the local governments. We have to get serious about a pension amendment to clarify that vested benefits are protected, but future benefits could be subject to legislative change in order to manage it, even with a constitutional amendment to reduce the, un um, the, uh, the unfunded liability. It's not going to be a panacea. It's going to be a portion. So what we face in Illinois, if we are going to stay here and fight and enjoy a state that many of us do, is increased taxes, less services, and very heavy lifting in terms of making our government more efficient and more accountable. Just a, if you want a brief follow-up, because there are other people waiting. Number one, I certainly agree with the too many governments, okay? Uh, I lived in Hoffman and uh, Schomburg for many years. And the only reason there were two governments there was religions, religious intolerance, okay? Uh, and that's how the two broke apart. Okay. Uh, secondly, you know, when interest, when inflation was eight and 10%, they were still only getting a 3% COLA. So, and then- And my so, point so, is not that you shouldn't so it, mark it, it the COLA based on what the interest, you shouldn't at one point say, we're gonna give you a 3% compounded forever and never look back on how you're going to pay for that. Never recognize that in the environment that we're in, we've been at a series for the last seven to eight years where it's been less than 2%. Right. But I do know to at least some degree, the faculty increased their contribution in extra half percent every year to get that COLA. We thank you. Okay. Thank you for sharing yeah. your views. Okay. Let me explain oh, sure. a little bit of the pension clause and, and what, uh, what, how it actually works. Um, so this young lady up here has a beautiful red hat. And when she went to the store, let's say that the salesman said that you're going to have to spend, that, that cost you $30. It, it, it's on sale, so you can get it for $30. A week later, let's say the salesman calls her back and says, you know what, that that particular hat was not on the sales rack, and it actually cost $100, and I'm going to charge your credit card $100. The way the pension clause is written, she could not take that hat back. She is stuck with it. The 3% COLA raises, whether we get 1% inflation, inflation, we're still stuck with that. The legislature cannot go back and make changes. Once a governor signs legislation, they can't go back and make any changes for anybody who is currently working. And, and as Lawrence said, they haven't calculated how much this, you know, they pretend a, a billion dollars is going to be saved. Well, again, once you do a benefit enhancement, they don't, they, they in the past did not calculate how much unfunded liability that added. And when they did the early teachers retirement option incentive, okay, in 2002, when they passed it, they said that that would save $62 billion, million from, save $62 million out of the current budget. They didn't calculate how much unfunded liability that added. 
It added $2.4 billion of unfunded liability. They calculated three months later. But guess what? The governor had signed the legislation, and the way the pension clause is written, they couldn't go back and take it away. And they still cannot go back and take it away. Hi, my name is uh, Freddie Batchelor. I'm actually a retired public trust officer for the United States government at HUD. And I have a real serious concern in regards to the budget and some of the funding that even comes from federal. Because being an individual that have worked in that type of area uh, in regards to the funding and everything, I know a lot of the programs, uh, CDBG, Community Development Block Grant, and a lot of the other grant-related programs that state only can apply for. They have a lot of different criteria in regards to the state and the usage of monies and budget and financing. So when I listen to everything and look at everything in regards to patterns, which I know is one thing they do look at, and the ability of states to balance or, or come somewhere about balance in the various core areas, housing, education, and some of the other areas that receive a lot of money and funding from you know the federal level, and in the evaluating of different applications and different things that the state submit, my fear is that by the state of Illinois not having had a balanced budget, not having had a budget, that with everything even going on at that level, that it's like a jeopardy, even some of those funds at that level, by them not being the higher level being able to say, okay, now the state is not fiscally sound and it has no ability to be fiscally sound. So therefore, we cannot trust them with this dollar from this area and this dollar from this area and this dollar from this area because they do have the capacity to do that in question when it comes to that. And they feel that a state more or less is going bankrupt. So. I just would like to hear some feedback in regards to that, because when you look at the progression of everything and all of the areas and the cutting of services and the, and the people really uh, have the need, and at that level they know that the people have the need because they hear it too. So I just would like to hear some of the thoughts in regards to that, because looking at everything, that is a possibility if they don't come to some something to begin to, you know, somehow in some of the core areas address some of these issues? Uh, well, you know, the, I think the, the danger that we're in, um, at least in the county and the city, is around uh, funding from the Department of Justice about being sanctuary cities and counties. Um, and while we are convinced that we comply with all federal rules and regulations, um, I'm not sure that the present administration in Washington believes that about either the county or the city. And uh, you have uh, undoubtedly heard that uh, Mayor Emanuel on Sunday announced that he was taking preemptive action to try to um, prevent the federal government from denying us funds, Department of Justice funds. Um, I think we're in for a battle there. And uh, frankly, it's unrelated to our budget crisis. It's, um, it's a political um, it's the political environment we're in and the challenges that 
uh, sanctuary cities and counties face. And for the city, I think it's 13 or 14 million dollars. For us, the county, it's three or four. Um, not quite as significant, but um, needless to say, we don't want to be in the position where um, the President of the United States has put a target on our heads and uh, is uh, proceeding to see how he can do us harm. So I think that's that's more likely the challenge we're going to face from the federal government. I think there's deep, <clears throat> troubling challenges in the federal budget proposals from President Trump and Speaker Ryan. Uh, just taking alone the proposal to turn Medicaid into a block grant, uh, there's a whole set of problems with that regarding health policy, but uh, as relevant here today, in a, in a stroke of the pen would take two more billion dollars out of the state budget every year, which affects everything, not just health care. Um, so you, you have to pay attention to those federal proposals and, you know, make sure that uh, the worst of those ideas doesn't come to pass. If I could add, um, I, and John is right, and, and it's uh, on me, because our, our budget, 46% uh, of our budget is health care, and we are um, very dependent on Affordable Care Act uh, coverage for our uh, health care system. We have 140,000 people in a Medicaid expansion program. And uh, as a result of federal support for those individuals, we've reduced our, our county taxpayer contribution to our health care system by $300 million a year. It was $400 million in 2010 when I came in office. And... For this year, it's 111 million. And while some of that is efficiencies, um, most of it is just the substitution of federal dollars for local dollars uh, into our health care system. And the estimates, to go back to John's point, um, should they decide to, to cap Medicaid or um, it, through the budget process to reduce the resources that we have to our health care system, our exposure is anywhere from 300 to $800 million. And that uh, would be a devastating hole for us to try to fill. Yeah, talk about financial holes. Um, we mentioned that, you know, the state is $210 billion in the hole. The federal government is more than $100 trillion in the hole, all right? Sometimes Illinois' budget amounts to 50% of their revenues come from the federal government. Um, and, you know, and that's just the federal government, that's just direct payments. You also have to think about, well, you know, AARP members, you're collecting Social Security. Okay, that comes from the federal government. That's being pumped into our economy. Um, vendors who live, who um, operate here. Um, there's uh, the federal government is the largest employer in the Chicagoland area. Okay, if the federal government crashes, hey, uh, we're you know we're going to lose a lot of employees too. So you know, truth in accounting, we started on the federal level um, and now we're in the state level and city level, but uh, the federal government is still a huge concern and where they're going to get the money to pay for their unfunded pen, uh, retiree health care, pensions, and Social Security and Medicare, who knows? I'd like to, I, I see we have some other questions. I just want to, I know President Preckwinkle has uh, somewhat limited time with us this evening. Um, you began by talking about people losing faith in government and its ability to solve problems. Um, something I've come back to in this uh, during the budget impasse is the uh, 
Paul Simon Public Policy Institute at SIU has done polling where they ask people, how do you solve the budget problem of Illinois? Do you cut? That's the most popular answer. Raise taxes is the least popular answer. A growing number of people have favored both cuts and raising taxes. But then when you ask them where to cut, edu higher education, uh, K-12 education, nobody wants to cut any of those things. And I wonder how do you reconcile that as somebody who has to stand before voters uh, every four years and, and obviously you're dealing with an unpopular um, soda pop tax right now uh, and working through that. Um, you know, how, do, how does government get back to communicating honestly with its citizens about, about these things? Uh, well, you know, I always try to be honest with, uh, with my constituents and uh, sometimes that means delivering difficult messages. And I started by saying, you know, if you want good government, you have to pay for it. Um, there's no magic to this. Um, the state of Illinois needs more revenue, just as we needed more revenue last fall uh, in our budget. Um, but the temptation always is to pander your, to your constituents and to pretend that somehow they can get good service without having to pay for it. And... Um, you know, in, in this country, really, of, of the developed world, we have relatively low taxes. I know that astonishes people, but if you look at, at, at most of Europe, northern Europe, the tax rates are much higher than they are in the United States. Um, but we have this sort of anti-tax uh, mentality that's ingrained in us somehow, um, perhaps through our history. Um, and that makes it very difficult for government leaders to, to tell people the truth, which is... You know, if you want services, you have to pay for them. Um, because they, as you say, um, people will say they want to make cuts, and then you list the kinds of things that you could cut. Oh, no, we don't want to do that. You know, we, those aren't things we want cut. Um, you know, when I, when I said we had to either raise revenue or we were going to make uh, personnel cuts, 1,100 staff people, um, because the overwhelming majority of our money, 87%, goes to public health and public safety. It meant we were going to lay off doctors and nurses and state's attorneys and public defenders and correctional officers. I mean, that's what you have to do if most of your money goes into those two buckets. Um, but it's very hard to get people to, to accept the fact that if you don't have the revenue, you have, to, you have to make cuts, and cuts in things that maybe they don't want to see cut. Um, so, I, you know, it's a... How can I say this? The, the political environment in this country makes it very hard for elected officials to be honest with people um, about how government really works, you know? And the way to make them honest is to go ahead and make sure that they're paying for the government that they're getting and be honest about how much the government is costing. Don't hide compensation costs. You know, don't hide bills by not paying them. Go ahead and be honest with... You know, the state sometimes, you know, they will claim a balanced budget, but they've run one to ten billion dollars of deficits. If you look at the audited financial statements, uh, let's go ahead and be honest with the public so they know how much needs to be paid for or not. I will tell you, though, that every elected official in Illinois can tell you that Governor Ogilvie, bless his heart, who instituted the state income tax, lost the next election. Uh, we've got about 20 minutes left, and I see a lot of people who want to talk, so... My uh, questions are brief, uh, and then they are literally questions. Um, to Lawrence, you said something in your introduction that I found very interesting. You were talking about the fact that the state has resources. There's no reason we should be in this situation. You use State of Illinois building, for example. 
what other resources do we have to fix this problem? I, I'm, I'm, I don't know exactly what you're referring to. I mean, do we have a stash of gold somewhere that, you know, <laughs> or, you know, you know. <laughs> you know, we talk about all the waste and all this. Maybe, the, I mean, is that the answer? I mean, I firmly believe we have to pay taxes, and, and I do understand that European taxes are much higher than ours. But given the facts, we, you know, we aren't receiving the services um, by mismanagement of the legislation or who, you know, like you said, their blame can go, you know, make its way around. But uh, it's hard to keep asking for more when we're getting less because it, our money is not being managed properly or we aren't utilizing our resources. For example, we have to pay our income tax or they will come after us. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. We have to have a good credit rating to get credit. And why aren't, why isn't the, you know, the government has to be held accountable to the same things that they ask of us. So Lawrence, you worked in the, so, I know Lawrence, you worked in yeah. some past administrations. Is there a stash of gold somewhere? Yes. And it's the, <laughs> there is. It's the citizens of Illinois. I mean, it is really what is the future is really where, and that's where your investment should be. Where is the, you know, where is the waste, the easiest place to cut is the interest rate on, that we pay on our unpaid bills. There are basic financial practices like having a budget. What's good news about where this meeting today is nobody's debating whether we need to have a budget or not. That was different over the last two and a half years. I would go into meetings and you'd have to start talking to people why you need a budget. And these are the elected officials. So, yeah, that, well, that's what right. I, and how and compound interest impacts, you know, a budget. So really the, the greatest, and, and, and people will say, well, Illinois, you know, they're almost junk and Chicago is junk or non-investment grade. Aren't we just like Detroit? We're not like Detroit by a long shot. Detroit had a 40-year trajectory of losing population at a rate till eventually it had less people and didn't have the economic base. There are cranes all over the city of Chicago where people are investing, but it won't go on forever. And, it's, and it won't go on if we don't have our schools open, if we're not investing in our universities. There's a great opportunity at the university level to rationalize where we are in terms of expected student enrollment and how we spend that money. But that requires us getting beyond arguing about whether you need a budget or not, whether or not basically the school should open and actually do what other states do on a routine basis, have a budget, set priorities. Everybody's for education, transportation, and the list goes on and on, but how do you pay for them and how do you prioritize them? Well, that's what, that was my initial question. You're talking about resources, the state of Illinois building. Everybody's always talking about mismanagement of, you know, we could sell this land or we could sell this building or, and are we, is, are we letting that all, you know? I think you need, you need recurring sources of income, not one-time gimmicks like selling the Thompson Center. We well, have a, a sort of antiquated and basically stupid tax system. We have a flat income tax. We need uh, that's another constitutional provision we have to change, and we don't apply the sales tax to the growing part of the economy, which is services. If we, uh, I read somewhere, if we had the Wisconsin tax system, so, you know, Governor Walker and so on, not a, not that an outlier, we we we'd, we'd be okay. Um, no, so we'd it's still not have six thousand nine hundred ninety-eight units of government. We'd still be very inefficient in how we deliver our. No, I, I'm not arguing that there's nothing else we need to do. Um, you know, just 
We can in fact, reform. the question was, where are the resources? Yeah. We can um, reform the tax system yeah. in, in Illinois. We can make it better. We can make it more equitable. But that requires participation. The Constitution requires a flat income tax. You want to change the Constitution? The General Assembly, when it decides it wants to change the Constitution, it moves very quickly. It did something this last year on it's called the lockbox amendment for transportation. So now all your gas taxes and motor vehicle taxes are limited, can only be used for roads and transportation related expenses. That sailed through the General Assembly, was on the ballot last November, it passed with all of the required requirements and now it's part of the law. It's possible to do the same thing on the pensions. That basically not take away people's benefits that they've earned to date, but to say in the future, we can't provide you something far more generous than any other state does and that we can afford. That will help bring it down. But there has to be both, right? The General Assembly decided, right, with, as was pointed out, that we're going to have an income tax rate of 4.95%. So that some people can say, well, it's less than it used to be b before. I don't know who that convinces that they're doing a good job, but that's what they went with. Um, it's unlikely that there's going to be any new big tax increases by this political um, unit of government, the state of Illinois. They've done that. So now they're going to have to work on the other side of the ledger, reducing costs, making it more efficiency, more efficient, and avoiding what we continue to see. And what, as President Preckwinkle has pointed out, people who tell you what you want to hear rather than what you want to know. How are we going to pay for this? How are we going to make this government work? Another caller on the line. Okay, my name is Teresa Massey-Peterson and I've been a social worker and educator and currently uh, work in the business area. Um, my question is to the first gentleman uh, that Jim spoke Saul. from the state. What's his name? Lawrence Massage. Lawrence, right. Um, my question to you is, you indicated, okay, this not having the state budget has cost us a lot of interest. And given the fact that we're, our credit rating isn't much anyway, has the legislature or anyone considered not paying the interest because of what the circumstances have been? Because as you pointed out, 12% interest was equal to what you give to the universities in the state. So uh, given the occurrence of this, and obviously there doesn't seem to be any way to, present, to prevent this emphasis or that, that happened insofar as them not passing a budget, um, what, you know, ha has that been considered? Because if they start paying the debt and paying the interest, you know, it, it just doesn't quite make sense. It brings to mind two things, one for clarity. In terms of bankruptcy, it was earlier mentioned bankruptcy. The states are not provided in the United States Bankruptcy Code. So the states can't currently, under federal law, file for, for bankruptcy. So the state of Illinois can't and won't go bankrupt. I like to say it doesn't need to go bankrupt because it can ignore its vendors, it can ignore its creditors in the same way that people would seek bankruptcy protection. I'm, but to your point on the I'm not saying bankruptcy. No, I know. You're basically what you're I'm making an excellent is, point. Right. You know, if you you know, if you can't pay the interest, you just don't pay the interest. I mean right. you know, but the, the, the is, interest is totally ridiculous. The interest penalty on especially health care bills at twelve percent 
is ridiculous, especially for over two years when the state was well, not even exactly. appropriating money for their employees' health care. So there was no way they were going to pay the bills, and so they were automatically guaranteeing that 12% penalty. Yes, it is something that is the Civic Federation and others have pointed to. A well-run state would not self-impose a 12% penalty in order to twist its own arm to say that you're going to make good on your payments and obligations. It has not been to the benefit of the vendors um, to have the 12% penalty. It generally has not been working as it was intended to make the state pay its bills on time. But it is the law currently. There are a couple of bills. Well, state Representative Elaine Neckritz and uh, Representative David Harris have introduced bills to curtail and change that for future bills. I think... Uh, Thank you it was just a consideration. Sure. I, I was just wondering, because I mean, from a pragmatic standpoint, you know, as citizens, you know, when we have to pay our bills, we have to make very hard decisions. And uh, when you're looking at the fact that these are needed social services that are lacking, that impact uh, our communities, that, that, that lead to more expense in the long term, not educating our kids, not having uh, health care, not having all of these social services is just creating more uh, agony and pain and expense in the future. Completely agree. I mean, it's basically why you need a budget so that you can invest in the things that are valuable to you. Not having a budget meant that we weren't investing in our children, we weren't investing in our uh, universities. And when we didn't have a budget, um, how much did it cost us? Um, the audited financial statements of the state said for 2016, we actually ran a deficit of $7 billion in that one year. That was the cost about not having a budget. Yeah, somebody said not having a budget does not equal not spending money. Hello, my name is Earlene Williams. And uh, I get upset when I hear people uh, talking about uh, the pensions, and uh, some people say it's uh, uh, so like a liability or whatever. Um, I retired in 2012 from um, the state. I was a state employee, and I deserve my pension. I work very hard. I deserve just like all of you, you guys up there. When you retire, you're going to deserve. Feel like you deserve your pension. Now, I remember going to a meeting once, and we were just talking about the pension. I remember that they said it was a lot of misallocation and reallocation of money, and there was, uh, it wasn't matched on the side of the state, our pensions, our money going into our pension, the money going into our pension. And uh, I'm all for uh, the COLA. And I asked them, I said, um, what um, what is there in place to keep this from happening in the future? You have any uh, plans for that? And they looked at me like I was crazy, and they said, well, uh, we really don't have anything like that because uh, if we needed to borrow it again, you know, we would uh, borrow into the pension. I said, well, then it'll never be solvent. You know, the same thing will happen all the time. And uh, well, that's, that's my idea about that. I think it needs to go on. It's a promise made. We paid our share all of those years, and we deserve it. As far as the um, the income uh, tax, um, well, I believe in uh, a graduated tax system. There's a lot of uh, situations, a lot of things I think that could be done where um, 
we could have a better system. We got a lot of people in here, a lot of them really filthy rich. And I'm thinking about what is the government for? Is it for them to get into it like it's their corporation and they tell people what to do? Or is it a situation where it's we the people and you're working for the people and you're uh, working pros and cons trying to get things done? Thank you. Because you our know. time is short, I'm going to ask if, you, uh, if anyone wants a quick response. Sure. We have a lot of people who are still wanting to ask questions. You know, just to, just to, to um, reinforce the lady's point, you know, the state workers made their contributions, you know, year after year to their pension funds. And the problem is that the state and both Republicans and Democrats are complicit in this. Let me be clear about it. It's not something you can lay at the door of either party. They all agreed to things what they called pension holidays, right? They, they spent the money now rather than putting it in the pension fund. And everybody, you know, went on... Um, how can I say this, irresponsibly uh, doing this. And, you know, the governors would go along, the legislature would do it. I mean, it's just, it's disgraceful. And it, it's not like it happened once or twice. It happened <laughs> a great deal. <laughs> and even when they made the pension contributions, they knew it wasn't enough really to meet our obligations in the long run. So the, the irresponsibility that brought us to this present point is not something, it's, it's bipartisan. That's it. Okay. Hi, my name is Cheryl Omgren. Um, I'm a uh, disabled adult uh, living in Chicago public housing. Um, I, I want to ask a twofold question uh, on behalf of myself and my neighbors. Um, uh, my neighbors wanted me to ask you, uh, what, why is the, um, what is, where is the money going from the soda pop tax? Because all of my neighbors and myself like our Diet Coke in the afternoon. <laughs> and then <laughs> the other thing I wanted to ask is, uh, and uh, my, my sisters asked me this, why is, uh, what is the seven cent bag tax uh, going to, what is, what is it being spent right. for? I can't speak to the bag tax because I'm, I'm a county uh, executive. Mm -hmm. I can tell you what uh, the money from the sweet and beverage tax mm -hmm. goes for. Eighty-seven percent of our budget is public health and public safety. Eighty-seven mm -hmm. percent. Mm -hmm. So that means we run a health and hospital system. Mm -hmm. Stroger Hospital, Provident Hospital, Cermak Hospital, and the jail. Sixteen ambulatory clinics. That means walk-in clinics mm -hmm. where you get primary and secondary care, specialty mm -hmm. care. Uh, we run a, uh, a managed care Medicaid program called mm -hmm. County Care. Mm -hmm. Uh, which serves people mm -hmm. who were previously uninsured. Mm -hmm. So that's on the public health side. And on the, mm -hmm. on the criminal justice side, we run the, the jails and the court system. Mm -hmm. So that's mainly what the county, those are the county functions. Mm -hmm. And we needed additional resources to continue to provide good services in those two areas. So that's what we use the money for. Mm -hmm. Could someone ask Rahm Emanuel what the seven cent bag tax is? Because no one's been able to answer that for Next me. I'll leave I that to say, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> it squeezes my neighbors every day. I think he'd, he'd tell you a, a similar answer. I mean, okay. um, I, I don't know for sure, but I, I don't think it's earmarked. It just goes to help the city maintain the services it provides. Right. Um, okay. So, it squeezes I, you know, my you right, let, me, let me say, having been an alderman for 20 years, mm -hmm. um, 60%, at least when I was there, 60% of the budget went to police, fire, and garbage collection. Okay. Okay? That's, that's mainly what your money goes to. Basically, defense, you know, protection against bad actors and fires, and cleaning up the garbage, which is, of course, a, a sanitation issue. Right. Thank you. My, um, 
my neighbors asked me to You can it. always get more efficient and smarter, and we should always do that, even in good times. On the state side, 90% of the general revenue fund goes to healthcare, human services, uh, public safety, and education, uh, preschool through college. Um, and so if you're going to cut your way out of a problem, you got to cut that. Got just about five minutes left. Okay, my name is Gwendolyn King, and um, I wanted to just make a, a comment. Maybe you can speak to it. But nobody ever talks about the wealth of Illinois, okay? Nobody ever gives us information about the revenues generated in this state. Whenever I go out of town and I tell people I'm from Chicago, the first thing out of their mouth is, oh, I love your city. I can't wait to get there. And so far, you know, we didn't have a budget for two years, but revenues continue to be collected. And interest was being uh, paid on that money sitting in somebody's bank. So what I'm thinking is, Illinois is a rich state, and I really resent anybody trying to rationalize the demise of working citizens who earn their benefits no matter where they worked, okay? And I really think that sometimes the political class thinks that we're stupid. We're not stupid. We know it takes almost eight hours to drive out of this state, north and south, six hours east and west, and you got a store, you got a house, you got somebody who had to pay a license fee, you got money flowing in this state, okay? And nobody never talks about the millionaires and the billionaires having to give up their pensions or any benefits that they've earned. So please, when you, when, when you, when you start talking to us about the conditions of the state, okay, I don't believe the lie that we're in, in dire trouble. And as far as the Supreme Court and the pension clause, that was a unanimous decision. So the justices felt that something was wrong with this picture and they unanimously voted for the retirees. Thank let, you. Let me say, you know, I think, to come, to come back to John's point earlier, um, we have a really um, regressive tax system in Illinois. If we impose um, sales taxes on services, if we had a graduated income tax rather than a flat tax, we'd be in much better shape and we could tap, the, to, to go to the lady's point, we could tap the wealth in the state and pay our bills. We have not, however, been willing to do that. That's the problem. It's not, it's not that there isn't wealth there to be tapped and to fund government. We haven't been willing to make the tough decisions um, that are required to put us on uh, firm financial footing. Next question. Uh, hello, my name is Marie Watson. I'm a retired Chicago public school teacher. Bless you. Yes. Uh, I taught the third grade curriculum, which has to do with the Illinois gov government. And the first thing I teach the children is the, gov the governor's job is to set a budget. And that goes for every leader that's a part of the government, the government level, different levels. And it starts with the top with our president. We can't see his taxes. He doesn't explain anything to us. <laughs> and everybody below that, every, they pay taxes, so they say, we don't know. But if I don't pay my taxes, there's a problem. I could be hauled into jail. But the people that lead seem not to care because they own businesses and they have wealth and they have their money overseas. Now, I've taught my students, <coughs> I, 
I taught them the curriculum, and I taught them to teach for them, to, to read for themselves and research and find out what people do. What are the people leading do? That's why you have uh, people out <coughs> in the streets doing any kind of thing. They, they do what they see. White collar crime all the way down. The money that uh, the wealth people have, the wealthy people have, they had it overseas. Now they want you to bring it back, but those countries are not going to uh, comply with us. They're not going to be complicit in telling you how much money has been hidden. And it's just like uh, we're supposed to be helping the common people. The money's supposed to go for the common good. The people who have it should sh well, you don't have to share your money if you don't want to, but I'm a retired teacher and I share my money with college students, people who don't have job, money to go to work. I help everybody that I can because at the end of the day, we have to be productive citizens of society. Thank you. You do have to share, you, do, you are forced to share your wealth through taxes. So that's, yeah. Brian, I want yeah. to apologize. I have another commitment, and sure. I can't stay. But I, I want to thank okay. um, I want to thank the Union League Club. I want to thank AARP. I want to thank uh, NPR for uh, giving us the opportunity to uh, share ideas with you. And I'm grateful for your willingness to share ideas with me. Thank you. And I. Uh, I have the same predicament, I'm afraid. Um, so, ditto, and thank you all. It's, it's been great to be here, thank you. I, I don't know, Sheila and uh, Lawrence, we have two more questions, if you guys are willing to stick around um, and brave the last two questions. John, Years ago, when the Illinois instituted the state lottery, we were told that the revenue would go to the schools. Where is this revenue? And where does all the revenue that all these riverboats and casinos, the state collects their money. If somebody wins a jackpot, where does this money go? Those are excellent questions. So first off with the lottery, the lottery generates about $500 million or so a year in revenue to the state. All of it goes into the common school fund but the state spends a lot more than 500 million. And so um, that is only a portion. The casinos, all of the casinos, and all of the um, off-track betting parlors and all of the horse tracks and the video poker machines in total generate less than a billion dollars. We've already talked in terms of revenue to the state. We already mentioned that the state wasted a billion dollars in interest and prompt pen penalty payments in the last year. So the easy answers to these financial problems, which are often sold as being a panacea that is going to be something we won't have to worry about it, are rarely enough. That's why we don't necessarily support dedicating one revenue source to state programs. It's better that the state have general taxes that are sufficient to pay those bills. All of the money can technically be said for the lottery goes into the common school fund, but it is not enough to fund the, the, the educational needs of the state. Because there's an awful lot of gambling going on in this state. There's, a, there's <laughs> right. lots and lots of riverboats and lots and lots of little casinos all over the place now. Last question. Uh, yes, my name is Jerry Turner. Uh, this is a more immediate question. 
can you explain the poison pill on the uh, 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 the Senate Bill One and how that works? Are we and how do you see the scenarios playing out? Is it simply going to be brinksmanship, the way it was on the budget, with Madigan and Rauner hoping the other blinks, or will the legislature in true traditional form have some mechanism to suspend the uh, poison pill and kick the can down the road and appropriate some money to keep the schools open? You would not have a lot of money if you bet against the Illinois legislature's ability to work around the obvious opportunity to fix its problems. So I can honestly say most of us don't know how this is going to play out. I feel fairly confident that the importance of education, and, and one, I want to thank everybody who came out today to talk about their government, to talk about taxes, to talk about tax policy. That is what we desperately need in the state of Illinois and in the city of Chicago, is citizens' participation. Because you have much more of a voice than I do, John does, than Sheila does, in terms of convincing legislators, governors, or others to do. When common citizens, average citizens, contact a legislator, if three or four contact a state representative, it's very significant event and very significant support. So thank you for all coming out today. Most likely the way this is gonna happen, why I'm so confident that it will be resolved is because people care about their schools. People care desperately that their kids be, have a safe and a good place for them to go. We are not gonna be able to operate a school system in the state of Illinois or any school district if we're not allowed to put the school aid formula to work for them. So it's a matter of days at most weeks before it will be resolved. There will be incredible political posturing. There will be a, uh, a lot of lines drawn in the sand, but at the end of the day, they will find a way to get the money to the schools. Under the current law that in Senate Bill 1 that was part of the legislative compromise, no money can be spent on elementary and secondary education um, in terms of the school aid formula unless there's an evidence-based formula that that requires reform. Whether the legislature decides to override the governor or accept the governor's um, veto, it requires a three-fifth vote of the General Assembly in both chambers. And I would also just like to thank all of you for coming out and thank the Union League Club and AARP for sponsoring. I think that'll do it. Thank you, everybody, thank and you. thanks to our panel.